Hey, welcome to the Redeeming God podcast. I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers, and today we are talking about election. No, not political election, but the doctrine of election in Scripture. Who is elect? What is election? Why are certain people elect? How can you know whether or not you're elect? We'll be discussing these questions and a few others while we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Stick around and listen. The doctrine of election, of course, is a big, touchy topic in Christianity in lots of circles. There's a whole Calvinism versus Arminianism debate. If you're not familiar with that debate, don't worry about it too much. Uh, And uh, there's a whole discussion about predestination and foreknowledge and election and, you know, who who did God choose? Why did God choose? And we're going to talk about all of that today as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And if you're part of my discipleship group, by the way, I do have uh, an, a, a, a lesson on election in the Gospel Dictionary online course. And if you're not, well, there are some links in the show notes, manuscript section for this podcast episode at redeeminggod.com slash Ephesians 1.4. And I have a book on election at Amazon called The Re-Justification of God. You can really buy it anywhere. Barnes & Noble, uh, Apple Books, and so on, but uh, preferred place is Amazon. Most people buy from there. And um, I, I think, and then also, oh, there was a podcast I did on election a while back. So anyway, uh, a couple other resources for you, but uh, that's what we'll be talking about today. Now, before we do that, I do want to talk a little bit about current events issue and a letter from a listener. So The current events issue I want to discuss real briefly is this whole attempt by the Democrats right now in D.C. to pack the Supreme Court with four more justices. We've had nine Supreme Court justices on the court since the 1800s, and now, under the last four years with Trump, when Trump was able to select three Supreme Court justices for the court, uh, the Democrats feel like that's not fair or something, and they want to add four more justices to the Supreme Court so that now they can have a majority. Um, <laughs> look, uh, just imagine for a minute, again, I go back to the same thing I do in all of these political discussions uh, of every sort, and I, I don't know what side of the aisle you might be on. Uh, I am politically conservative for the most part. I don't line up every with, it, with everything that conservatives do, but um, I think it makes the most sense logically and politically, and also lines up most with Scripture as well, these views. Uh, but as far as when it comes to these sorts of issues, uh, I always try to say, well, what would have happened if the opposing political party had tried to do this? I'm Personally, I am opposed to adding four new justices to the Supreme Court. And you might say, well, Jeremy, this, and and then that should have happened. Okay, you may have your reasons, and I know the Democrats do, and I've listened to some of them. Uh, But imagine if if, uh, Trump had tried to, let's say he didn't get the opportunity to add three more justices to the Supreme Court, or even if he did, he wanted to really solidify the supermajority or whatever on the Supreme Court, and he had tried to add four more judges or even two, to the Supreme Court. (laughs) You know exactly what would happen. Uh, There would be, he would be roundly condemned by the media. He would be called, uh, even more so, a fascist 
than many people had called him during his four years. And uh, in many cases, that would be correct, because presidents and, and politicians should not be messing with these sorts of long-held traditions uh, in our political arena about the Supreme Court. The same goes with D.C. statehood and other things like that, okay? All of this is a power grab by the Democrats, and it's, it's wrong, um, it's hypocritical, and uh, honestly, it's the fascism that they were always accusing Trump of. Turns out that the Democrats have much more fascist and uh, dictatorial behavior than Trump ever showed. So anyway, I'm opposed to this, and I'm not sure where you are at on this debate, but again, I encourage you, if, if, if you're opposed to it, fine. You probably have some of the same reasons I do. If you're in favor of it, though, ask yourself if you would have been in favor of it if Trump had done it. I think you know that the answer to that would be obviously not. You would not have wanted Trump to do this. Well, if you didn't want Trump to do it, then you shouldn't want your own side to do it either. That's the way I apply, uh, try to think through all of these issues. If I was in favor of Trump or somebody else doing something, uh, well, would I have been happy if, if the Democrats or liberals had done it? And vice versa. Okay, so um, I that's that's the way it is best to proceed on these issues, and that's how I feel on this. Now, there's lots of political reasons and logical reasons and historical reasons as well that I I think that more justices should not be added to the Supreme Court. I mean, just for, for example, let's just say that four years, well, I guess it'd be about three years from now, three and a half years from now, the Republicans regain uh, the 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 White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. And let's say that the Democrats were successful this year in adding four more justices to the Supreme Court. Well, if that happens, what's going to stop the Republican majorities to then add, I don't know, what would it be, uh, six more <laughs> Supreme Court justices? So, you know, and, and there's no end to this. It, it's just ridiculous. So it's nine, and that's the way it is. And as Obama famously said, and others, elections have consequences. So that's where we're at. And I think that um, we should all, all level-headed people should be opposed to this sort of manipulation of the highest court in our land. It's a mockery of the justice system and, and, and legal, the legal system to try to change the rules uh, just because you don't like the outcome. All right, so that's where we're at on the Supreme Court and sort of briefly my views. Let's just try to apply the law consistently across the board and our opinions consistently across the board, also regardless of who is trying to do what. So with that in mind, let's turn to a letter from a listener. You have mail. All right. So I did get a letter from a man, a reader, a listener named Brad, and here's what he wrote. He said, hello again, Jeremy. I am about to begin to read one of your books, plus I'm thinking about joining your discipleship group. I have some questions that I want to run by you. There are a lot of TV evangelists and prophecy teachers that do not believe in the security of the believer. They have all kinds of education, yet they distort the message of life. Why is that, Jeremy? All right, so uh, oh, and Brad went on to ask another question about some author named Dr. Thomas Horn. I've never heard of Dr. Thomas Horn. I'm uh, and I've never heard of him or any of his books either, so I really can't speak to him or anything about that. Sorry about that, Brad. I won't. I can't address that second part of your question. But on this first one, why some teachers, especially TV evangelists and prophecy teachers, do not believe in the security of the believer, even though they have lots of education? Look, education, first of all, is no evidence or no proof. 
uh, that someone knows what they're talking about or is right. You can have someone with 17 doctorates. That doesn't mean they're right about what they teach. They might be right in some things and wrong in others. It's the same with me. I hope none of you believe everything I say. You should be a noble Berean. Search the scriptures uh, for yourself. Make up your minds. Okay, don't accept everything I say just because I say it. That's a recipe for disaster. So as far as these TV evangelists and prophecy teachers, look, they may be well-educated, and some of the schools they went to were what we would consider Pentecostal schools, schools that um, and seminaries and Bible colleges that take certain views of uh, the spiritual gifts and even the role of good works and so on in the life of the believer and apply them differently than many other do in Christian circles. And one of the ramifications or consequences of sort of Pentecostal theology is that they do tend to look towards a person's works for whether or not that person has eternal life. Now, in Pentecostal circles, a lot of times those works include things like speaking in tongues or prophecy or having visions or things like that. It's not true with all Pentecostal circles, but In many of them, that is sort of the case. And so if a person says they're a Christian, but they've never had any sort of miraculous uh, signs that accompany their conversion, then some in those Pentecostal circles might question or challenge whether that person really has eternal life. Okay? So um, that's sort of one of the drawbacks to that theology, is they look to these, these outward manifestations of the Spirit in order to determine whether or not a person truly is a believer. Now, in other, in other circles, in other Christian circles, in other denominations and, and groups, they look to other things, like the fruits of the Spirit, or uh, perseverance and good works and obedience and those sorts of things. But in every case— all right, in every case, and here's the bottom line principle that I apply to all of these situations. In every case, there is a failure to understand the radical, outrageous, shocking, absolutely free grace of God. All right? I teach over and over and over that that grace is it, it can't be modified, it can't be amended, you can't limit it or restrict it in any way, shape, or form. And if you've done that, then you've lost the gospel. And that's what happens whenever somebody tries to add some element of works onto either receiving eternal life. Well, if you need to, if you're going to receive eternal life, you need to repent of your sin and you need to get baptized and you need to, okay, fill in the blank, or some sort of good works to keep your eternal life. Well, if you're going to keep your eternal life, you need to make sure you don't lie and you don't lust and you don't, right, do these certain things, or you're going to, God will take away your eternal life from you, okay? Or have you have good works to prove that you have eternal life. And uh, that is very, very, very common in Christian circles. Well, if you're really a Christian, then you will do this and you will read your Bible and you will pray and you will give 10% to your church and you will attend church regularly and you will, right? Uh, get rid of certain behaviors or habits in your life that are not pleasing to God. The list goes on and on and on. And if you don't do those things, well, maybe you didn't really become a Christian in the first place. All of these sorts of views take this idea of good works, either before uh, eternal life, after eternal life, or to keep your eternal life, and it takes away from the grace of God. So I do talk a lot about this in my Gospel Diction, I'm sorry, in my Gospel According to Scripture online course. Uh, the Gospel According to Scripture online course. That's uh, pretty much what that course is all about. 
And um, it's a dangerous uh, but very prominent view in Christianity to somehow limit or restrict the grace of God in these various ways. So that is why many of these very well-educated Pentecostal and prophecy teachers don't believe in eternal security, because they don't understand the grace of God as deeply or as greatly as it is discussed by Paul and Peter and, and, elsewhere, and even Jesus himself in various ways throughout the Bible, throughout especially the New Testament. So uh, that's, that's my view on that. Now, that doesn't mean you have to reject everything they say. They, a lot of times these teachers have some good things you can learn and, and glean from, but be very careful when it comes to their teachings about eternal life and, and, and eternal security. Um, th- those sorts of things are, uh, listen to what they say with not just a grain of salt, but a whole cup full of salt. Okay, so uh, be very, very careful with that. Just remember, it's grace from first to last, or you don't have the gospel. Okay? All right, that is uh, the quick question from the reader. Let us go on then and look at our study of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 provides us with the who, the what, and the why of election. All right, now, I did mention it briefly, but I do have a sermon on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 on my website. So this, uh, this what I'm going to share here is drawn a little bit from that sermon. And then I've also written that book, The Rejustification of God, which you can get on Amazon or pretty much anywhere books are sold. And of course, I do have the lesson on election in the online dictionary course, in my gospel dictionary course for the uh, people who join my discipleship group. And I did have a previous podcast episode called Election is to Service. So you can search Google for that or just look back through the podcast archives on your, whichever, wherever you subscribe to the podcast uh, to find that. But uh, in this podcast, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. The verse says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. All right, there's lots that we could talk about in this verse, and I'm going to unpack most of it if I can. You might notice right off the bat, though, that the term election is not even in this verse. I'm talking about election in this podcast episode, in this study of Ephesians 1-4, but the word isn't even there. That's true. Uh, In fact, the word election is not found anywhere in the entire letter of Ephesians. Okay? The thing is, though, is the word elect simply means to choose. And so the word choose is in here, just as he chose us. I see the two terms as synonymous, elect and choose. And so even though uh, the word elect is not here, the word choose is, so I still think it's safe to talk about election in the context here, because Paul uses that that term, he chose us. It's a synonym for election, okay? So with that in, in view then, there are really three questions which are going to help us understand election and also help us understand Ephesians 1.4. And in fact, all texts about election as well. Once you understand these concepts about election that I'll be discussing here, you can pretty much understand any other passage about election in the Bible as well. So the three questions are this. First, who is chosen? Who is chosen? Second, when are they chosen? And third, 
why are they chosen? All right, so this is sort of the who, when, and why. We're also going to look at the what of being chosen or election. So let's answer them one by one. We are going to begin with who is chosen, and in the process, answer the question, what is election as well? So the text says, Ephesians 1.4 says, he chose us in him. All right, so who is chosen? Well, it says us. We, we are chosen. And of course, who is the us? Well, you can go back to the previous verse, Ephesians 1.3 and, and Ephesians 1.2. And then even down further in verses 6 and 7, and pretty much consistently throughout this, Paul is referring to believers, himself and the believers to whom he's writing. Uh, In verse 3, the word us refers to all of those, all of us who are blessed in heavenly realms. And we talked about that last time. In verses 6 and 7, oh, and also verse 8, the us refers to everyone who has received riches, the riches of God's grace. Well, who's that? Christians. Okay, so in the context here, the us refers to Christians. Now, having said that, though, I want you, we don't know, don't need to, we can't stop there because Paul has said he chose us in him. Very important. Very important. The sort of the, 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 the context here, the grammatical structure shows us then that it's not so much that God chose us, it's that God chose him. And who's him? That's Jesus. Um, it's it's Jesus Christ. So really in the context here, the chosen one is Jesus. Jesus is the chosen person. He's the firstborn among the, the elect. He is the first chosen person, the, 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 the choice servant of God, we could even put it that way. And this is a really important because it right away here does away with a very common misconception about election. Let's just pull away from the verse just a little bit, uh, just a little bit, and talk about that. The common view of election. If you go ask the average Christian in the pew or the average pastor in the pulpit, what is election? Usually, they are going to say something like, "Well, election is God's choice of who He is going to give eternal life to, and He made this choice in eternity past." And he didn't choose everyone. You know, there was this mass of sinners, of unregenerate people, and God went around simply by his grace, and he chose certain people out of that mass of sinners to give eternal life to. Everybody else, well, uh, they're headed to hell or off to eternal condemnation or something. Okay? So that's sort of the traditional understanding of election. God's choice from the mass of sinners about who he would give eternal life to. Okay. Right away then, here in Ephesians 1-4, we're discovering a problem, a major, major problem with that definition. Just to reiterate, the definition said, God's choice out of the mass of sinners. Okay, well here in Ephesians 1-4, we just learned that Jesus is the primary chosen one. Okay, we were chosen in him. That means God chose Jesus and we were chosen in Jesus. Well, now, wait a second. Was Jesus a sinner? Was Jesus one of the mass of unregenerate sinners in the world? No. Jesus never sinned. He is without sin. So right away, we have a problem with that traditional understanding of election. If election is God's choice of sinners, out of the sinners, who he will give eternal life to, but God chose Jesus, but Jesus wasn't a sinner. You see the problem here? 
Usually when this objection is brought up, people say, well, Jesus was a special case. You see, in Jesus' case, he wasn't a sinner, obviously. We're not saying that. In Jesus' case, he was chosen by God to perform a special task, to fulfill a purpose or a function in this world. Uh, He was chosen by God to be the Savior of the world, to come and reveal God to us and deliver us from our sin. Okay, fine. And you know what? I would not I would not disagree with that. I agree with that 100%. That's, that is what Paul is talking about here, and that is uh, what the rest of Scripture talks about and refers to Jesus, the election or choice of Jesus uh, by God. Okay? Uh, but if that's the case, so, so here we see, and they would agree with this, that in the case of Jesus, Jesus was chosen for service, to, to, to fulfill a task or a function or a purpose. But then when it comes to the rest of us, then the definition changes. And now it's, well, God's choice of sin, out of this mass of sinners to save, to, to give eternal life to a few people, a select you know, number of people. Uh, why, can it, why can't we just keep the same definition of election for both? Okay, In Jesus' case, he was chosen by God to fulfill a certain task or function. Why can't that be the definition of election for us as well? Why can't it be that if Jesus was chosen by God, elect by God to fulfill a certain task or function, that we also are chosen by God, elected by God, to fulfill a certain task or function? Wouldn't that make the most sense? And in fact, when you go and look at all of the other passages in Scripture about election and chosen and predestination, okay, all of those— and you forget this idea of God choosing out of the mass of sinful humanity who he was going to give eternal life. Just forget that idea. Get it out of your mind. And instead, bring in this other idea that Paul presents here, that, that election is to service. Election is God choosing to give tasks and functions and purpose and roles and missions um, to certain people so that they can fulfill those in this world. That definition fits perfectly in all of these other passages as well. The bottom line, then, we see from this is that election has nothing whatsoever to do with God choosing which people get eternal life and which people don't. Which people get to spend eternity, eternal life, eternity with him, and, you know, the other people, well, they're off suffering. You know, I don't believe in the suffering of hell the way traditional is done either, but you understand that that's how it's often portrayed. Election is, has nothing to do with that. Election is instead God, when God chooses certain people, sometimes Jesus, sometimes others, to perform certain tasks, to fulfill certain functions, to perform certain roles, whatever, in world history. Okay, election is not God's choice of who gets eternal life. Election is God's choice of who will serve his purposes and how they will do it. Okay, election is not to eternal life. Election is to service. All right? Uh, by the way, uh, if election was to eternal life, as the traditional view teaches, then Ephesians 1.4 would not read, he chose us in him. It would read, he chose us to be in him. Right? He chose which of us he would place in Jesus Christ. He chose us to be in him. But that's not, that's how it would read if the traditional common view was correct. But that's not what it says. Paul wrote, he chose us in him. Okay, so Jesus is the chosen one. And because we are in Jesus, 
then we also are chosen. That's what Paul is teaching here. Now, I go into great detail on this in my book, The Rejustification of God. By the way, there's another great book on this topic by Sean Lazar titled Chosen to Serve. I highly recommend it. You can also get that on Amazon. There's also a link to it in the manuscript show notes section for this study on Ephesians 1.4 at my, my, uh, my website, redeeminggod.com slash Ephesians 1.4. Okay, so um, with that definition, so, so what is election? We've just seen what election is. Election is not God's choice to etern- of people to give them eternal life. It is God's choice of people, including Jesus, to give them certain tasks or functions. Election is not to eternal life. Election is to service. So what is election? We've seen that. Okay, so that was sort of a subset of this first question, but now we're able to go back and look briefly at this idea of who is chosen. Who is chosen? We've already seen that. Well, Jesus, in this context, ultimately is the primary chosen one. That's what what Paul is talking about here. And then, of course, we also are chosen. We are chosen in Jesus. Since Jesus is chosen and we are in Jesus, then therefore we are chosen in him as well. We are chosen as well because we're in him. Now, how did we get in him? Again, this is refer- uh, we, we become in Christ when we believe in him for eternal life. Uh, that's a, 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 a teaching that's all over in, in Paul, and uh, Paul's favorite, one of Paul's favorite terms is in Christ, everything that we have in Christ. We'll be seeing this a lot more as we go throughout Ephesians. Okay, so again, it goes back to this idea that in this context, Paul is referring only to believers who are in Christ. Now, does that mean that unbelievers cannot be chosen? No, uh, in other contexts, they can, in fact, be chosen. Uh, For example, elsewhere we read that um, God chose Abraham, of course. Now, I believe Abraham was regenerate. We know that from various passages. He did have eternal life. Uh, But we also see that in Abraham, all Israel was also chosen. Well, does that mean that all Israel also had eternal life? No, it doesn't mean that at all. I believe there were many unregenerate Israelites. Many Israelites who did not have eternal life. Yet they were chosen. Uh, what were they chosen for? To fulfill a certain task, a function, to have a purpose, a role in God's plan for human history. Okay, so here, there's an example of where God can choose a nation, an entire group of people, not to give them eternal life, but for service, for a function, for a role, for a task. We have other places in Scripture, for example, where God chose Pharaoh. Why? so that he could fulfill a certain task and a function during the Passover and the Ten Plagues to help liberate Israel, the Hebrews, uh, from Egypt, slavery in Egypt. God chose Cyrus, King Cyrus, to help bring deliverance and and bring the people back to the Promised Land, so on, in Israel. God chose Judas. Judas was among the twelve disciples, and Jesus says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Okay, well, Jesus chose Judas. Does that mean Judas have eternal life? Well, Actually, I'm a little, uh, I don't know on that. There's some really good arguments in favor of Judas having eternal life. It would be an amazing testimony to God's grace if he did. Uh, But that's beside the point. The traditional view is that he didn't. So even if that's true, Judas was still chosen. Why? To fulfill a certain task, a function, a role. He had to betray Jesus. And so... Uh, again, we have these examples throughout Scripture of people who were chosen, they were elect, but they were not regenerate. They did not have eternal life. Here in the context, it's referring just to believers who are chosen, but there are other places where unbelievers can be chosen, can be elect. And again, that fits 
with the definition of election that it's not God's choice to eternal life. It's God's choice to service. God's choice of who will serve, who, who, will, who will fulfill a certain function or task in his role, uh, or role in his purpose for humanity. Okay, so uh, who was chosen? Well, Jesus and us and you know, other scripture, other people as well. And um, what are they chosen to? To serve, not, not, not to eternal life. Okay, uh, next question then. When did this choice occur? Well, in the context here, Ephesians 1.4 says, before the foundation of the world. Now, this is referring primarily to Jesus. Since Jesus is the chosen one in uh, the chosen one, then Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world. I believe in eternity past. Uh, it is Jesus Christ who was chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, as far as the choice of other people, and, you know, Pharaoh, and Judas, and Cyrus, and you, and me, and so on, to fulfill certain tasks, um, we could say that those choices also occurred in eternity past, but now we're getting into this whole doctrine of foreknowledge and predestination, and that will take us a little too far afield for our study here of Ephesians 1-4, uh, but, and also into to God's omniscience and what he knows and when he knows it. And it's a very complex discussion, which I'm not going to get into here. The point is, here in the context, the choice of Jesus occurred before the foundation of the world, before the world was created, before time began. And because we are in Jesus, then in a sense, we too were chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the world. We were given assignments and tasks before we were ever even born. All right, so that's sort of the second question. When did this choice occur before the foundation of the world? Thirdly and finally, then, why were these people chosen? Why were we chosen? Why were you and I chosen? And this really is the missing piece of the puzzle here. It sort of fits everything together, but also helps reiterate and emphasize what I've already been teaching about election. This is the key to election. Um, why did God choose certain people to fulfill certain tasks. Uh, here in the context, why did God choose us in Jesus Christ? And the rest of the verse, the rest of Ephesians 1-4 tells us, Paul writes, so that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. All right, here's our task that has been assigned to us, sort of a blanket statement about what God's goal for us is. The task believers are to strive for is holiness, blamelessness, to live in love before Jesus. Now again, if the traditional doctrine of election was true, then this verse would read very differently. It would not only say he chose us to be in him, but rather than that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, Paul would write that we should receive eternal life so that we can spend eternity with God. Okay, you see, if election is about God's choice of who gets eternal life, then that's how this verse should read. But that's not how what Paul wrote. Paul is writing here about sanctification, becoming, becoming holy and blameless. And so this is about works and how we live. And so that that is that also shows that the the sort of common view of election which is a misunderstanding of election, that, that also, here's further proof that that view is not true. By the way, a misreading of this verse leads to that question from the reader from Brad earlier on, right? If you believe that all elect are going to be holy and without blame, 
this is a perfect verse for that view. It's a misreading uh, of the verse because of the context, and, and even because Paul said, Paul does not write, we are chosen in him. But if that's what you believe, then you say, look, uh, Ephesians 1, 4, all elect will be holy and blameless. Therefore, if you're not holy, if you're not blameless, well, then you're not elect. You are headed for hell. You don't have eternal life. Okay, you see how that works? It's much better, uh, consistent, gracious, to, to read this verse the way we are proposing here. That this is not about God choosing who gets eternal life. This is about God assigning tasks to certain people so that his plans and purposes in this world can be carried out. And that fits with grace, that fits with the context, it fits with many other passages in Scripture as well. All right, so what is what are people chosen to do? Well, the same thing Jesus was chosen to do. Jesus lived holy in holiness, he lived blamelessly, he lived in love, and since we have been chosen in Jesus, then that is what we are chosen to do as well. So here again, we see election is not to eternal life. Election is to a task, to a purpose, to a role, to a function. Again, taking up Abraham and the Israelites. Why did God choose Abraham and the Israelites? To be a blessing to the world, to the rest of the world, ultimately to bring Jesus Christ to the world through the people of Israel. This doesn't mean all the Israelites had eternal life. That has nothing whatsoever to do with God's choice of Israel. Uh, God chose them to be a blessing to the world. God chooses the church to be a blessing to the world. God chooses you and I and Jesus to be a blessing to the world. Okay, so this is the doctrine of election. Now, it comes to this then, that you and I, a lot of times when people hear about election, one of the first things they wonder is, well, how do I know if I am elect? The answer there is simple. If you're a believer, then you are elect. Okay. All believers, Ephesians 1.4 is telling us that all believers, everyone who is in Jesus Christ, is elect in Jesus Christ. And so if you don't know whether or not you're elect, well, do you know whether or not you have eternal life? And if your answer to that is, well, Jeremy, I'm not sure, I don't know, I would say, look, have you believed in Jesus for eternal life? Do you believe that the only way, the absolutely only way you can receive eternal life is if Jesus gives it to you? You can't work your way to heaven. You can't ever be good enough. You can't try hard enough. You can't, you can't go for a day without sinning, so you better get righteousness from God through Jesus, because that's the only way you're going to get it. You'll never, ever achieve it on your own, right? Is that what you believe? And you say, yeah, that's what I believe. Then look, you have eternal life, and that's God's promise to you. And God doesn't lie. That's the promise of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't lie. Anyone who believes in me has everlasting life, okay? So if you believe that, if you believe in Jesus alone for eternal life, then guess what? You are in Jesus, and therefore you're elect. And therefore, you've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. You know what this means? I don't know if you remember in grade school, uh, it was a recess or gym class or whatever, uh, PE class, as we called it at our school, PE, physical education. Uh, they had these things where there would be two teams. You're going to play basketball or volleyball or whatever, soccer, uh, football, as you call it in Europe and other, the rest of the world. Uh, and they would have two team captains. And I don't know how those two were chosen. I don't remember. The teacher, the PE teacher would, would choose them or something. And then they would stand up in front and they would start picking teams. And I remember, if you remember, you, you do not want to be chosen last, right? You want to be chosen some, you would love to be chosen first. I want Jeremy. 
never happened to me. I was not the greatest athlete. Wasn't bad, but I was not the best. So I was rarely chosen first. Um, but thankfully I was never chosen last. Uh, and I was always grateful for that. You remember this sort of the, the fear and the worry and the anxiousness. Oh, I hope I don't get chosen last. I want to be chosen first, or at least, you know, in the middle somewhere. Right. Well, look, Jesus is, or Paul is telling you and I here that you've been chosen first. You were chosen before you were ever born. And you've been chosen by God. God has a team. It's God's team. And he wants to accomplish certain things. He wants to run certain plays in this world uh, and in world human history. And guess what? You have been chosen first. Why? Because there are certain things God wants to accomplish in his plan for human history that, that only you can accomplish. You're a specialist. Okay, no one can replace you. You are irreplaceable. And so God has chosen you first before the foundation of the world to fulfill certain tasks and functions, which only you can do. You are on God's team. And guess what? If you sit out, if you sit on the sidelines, the team's going to suffer. The team is going is not going to do as well as we could. And that's why Paul is talking here about this selection right very the beginning. I've been telling you before, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is all about our riches and blessings we have in Jesus Christ. And this is the first one that Paul wants to talk about, is our election. You have been chosen in Jesus Christ to accomplish something on God's team. You might say, wow, what is it? What is it? I want to do it. Well, we're going to get to that. Ephesians 1 through 3. First, Paul has got a lot more blessings. He's got a list for you. All of the things are going to help you do what, what God has chosen for you to do. Okay, and then we're going to get to Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6, where Paul starts to lay out what some of those things are. So you got to stick around for the whole thing. Ephesians 1 through 3 will learn more of the blessings, more of the riches, more of the rewards and great gifts God has given to you in Jesus, so that when we finally get to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, you can learn what you're supposed to do with them as a member of Team God. Okay, so that's, that's where we're, we're headed, and uh, that's Ephesians 1-4 on election. I sure hope it makes sense, and as you study election elsewhere in Scripture, just keep this idea in mind. Election is not to eternal life. Election is to service. That's going to help you an awful lot as you seek to understand election everywhere else in Scripture. Hey, thanks for joining me today. We will pick back up next time with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. See you then.